WFAE's David Borex has the story. Tariq Bakari and Larkin Eggleston call their podcast R&D in the QC. Eggleston says they hope to reach people who may not pay attention to the council. Eggleston is 35 and a Democrat. Bakari is a 37-year-old Republican. Despite their political differences, they bonded on the campaign trail in part over their beards, says Bakari. The beards themselves are what truly united us in the beginning. They hope to be an example of how to debate productively across the political divide. Episode 40, R&D and the QC election special. Join us as we interview the chairs of both the Republican and Democratic state parties and give you our analysis and endorsements for the upcoming election. That's right, folks. It's episode 40. Larkin, can you believe we've made it this long? Our podcast is officially over the hill. Over the hill. I mean, yeah, this is basically, our podcast should be making its its arrangements to uh, to kind of wrap everything up, right? That's what happens after 40. You just die? You just die. Huh. Ouch. No, there's plenty well, of people I'm over Glad you're 40. closer than I am, though. Yeah, ouch. So, election edition. Man, we've got some very... We, we actually scrambled around last week uh, to be able to deliver our listeners with two great separate um, interviews that we did with both the North Carolina Republican and Democratic Party chairman. R&D was out in the field last week, and we have got interviews upcoming with Robin Hayes and Wayne Goodwin. Uh, you will enjoy those. We had... A, Good chance to sit down and chat with both of them for a while and get their take on some of the statewide things you'll see on your ballot, uh, as well as just kind of the the state of the the state of the state, if you will. Um, but before that, Tarek and I are going to give you our um, unsolicited advice yes. and opinions. Yes, and um, Let's see where we agree. <laughs> we decided we weren't going to try to go through every single race that's going to be on the ballots in Mecklenburg County because that would be a bit unwieldy. But, um, of course, you can reach out to either of us if you are interested in our opinions on any specific race. But we each kind of agreed we would pick uh, a couple that are of particular interest to us, and we would talk about these constitutional amendments. Uh, What do you want to do first? So why don't we just go back and forth? I'll throw one out that I want to endorse, and then you comment, and then you throw one out you want to endorse, and I'll comment. We'll We'll see if we agree on anybody. A lot easier for us to agree during a primary when literally our R&D sides are not opposing each other. Well, then I think we should start with what we certainly both agree uh, that Mark Harris has no business in Congress. So my first one (laughs) that I'm going to throw out there is uh, Matthew Ridenour, county commission, uh, personal friend, worked with him, hung with him. Families have hung for over a decade, and I've been watching him for several terms on the county commission. And I I just uh, every time I see him, he, he, you know, He's the kind of guy that uh, I, I almost try to model aspects of myself on. I mean, he's a solid guy on the on a county commission, which is not that um, um, easy of a body to serve on. I certainly agree with the not that easy oh, you body endorse? to serve on. With the, that it's not an easy body to oh, serve you on. you endorsed him. Cool. Uh, no, I do like Matthew, and I, I have nothing bad to say about Matthew. Um, Susan Hardner's running against him, I think, would be an able public servant. Um, but, again... I think Matthew represents what what a lot of voters want, which is more moderate voices. I haven't had a chance to get to know Susan as well. Uh, Not endorsing Matthew, but not endorsing against him. How about that? All right. A neutral. Perfect. So your turn. Uh, Well, I was kidding about you agreeing with me, but I I do think Dan McCready is, for me, one of the most important races in this because – in a show where we try to find some middle ground, I think Dan finds middle ground, and he's been he's been given a hard time for, and you'll hear in the interview later with um, with GOP chair Robin Hayes that he says he's he's running as a Republican. I just think he's running as a moderate, and the fact of the matter is that there are districts in this state and in this country where the electorate is moderate and they want moderate people, and and Mark Harris is not a moderate voice for North Carolina and Congress if he were to go there. So I think Dan McCready represents a lot of the things that the Republican Party even values, and and we as Democrats certainly do too, which is this this man started a business. He is a veteran. He's a family man. Um, I think he would be a a moderating voice in our delegation to Washington, and I am uh, eagerly awaiting 
next Tuesday night finding out that he's going to be headed to Congress. All right. So I I can't agree with you on this one, but l- let me tell you my my reason. And there's really two reasons that I'm I'm supporting Mark Harris, right? Um I think first of all, I've never met McCready in person, I don't think, but he strikes me, but I mean, I I take I I put a lot of credence in in your your feedback. Uh, you see through a lot of BS and things out there. So if you tell me and you vouch for him, that's obviously a big thing. Love is military service. Two things, though, uh, uh, that make me go the other way here. One, I have I followed closely in, in the press, which is the press, uh, how he has been responding to specific questions. I get it trying to play down the middle of the aisle. I get trying to be or being uh, a, a bit kind of, you know, centrist in your views. But that, that's different than what seems to me, he seems to me to be a smart guy, of a, a strategic don't answer questions and don't let people see your positions because you're going after the independents out there who may or may not like what you're saying. Maybe he just doesn't have any strong opinions, but it has become abundantly clear to me on, on point number one that he's unwilling to take those stands. And, you know, I, on the other side of the coin, I know what you're going to say. You got Mark Harris, who is not uh, um, uh, tentative or hesitant to hit, to take his stance, and I think that rubs some people the wrong way. And while, as a conservative millennial who really cares about all things conservative, but none more so than fiscal conservatism and things like that, some of the things I you know I see and I'm like, uh, right, maybe that was taken out of context, but that certainly doesn't make me feel proud seeing this ad or that ad out there. I will say. When you look at the district, one thing above all that I that I look at is not me personally and just what do I want, but what best represents the electorate. And in and, and Mecklenburg and, and Charlotte is a small little sliver of this district that then goes east into a lot of really rural areas where, to be honest, that is reflective of how a lot of them feel. So I'm not saying right or wrong or how it's been portrayed makes me proud. I'm just saying... Even the observers endorsement say we believe this person best reflects the, the 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 issues that that group in that district wants to champion. So for those two reasons, that's why I have to kind of tentatively sway over to the Mark Harris camp. Yeah, I think that the Democratic does represent more of what this district is about. In the interview with Mr. Hayes later, he one of the first things he references as a feather in Mark Harris's cap is that he helped lead the uh, amendment to ban same-sex marriage in North Carolina, which was later overturned just a couple years later. So I don't think that represents the majority of this district. I don't think Mark Harris represents the majority of this district. I think, and and Robert Pittenger is somebody I, I knew and didn't agree with on a lot, but agreed with on a few things. I think he did really well on foreign policy issues at times and, and some other stuff where I thought he represented uh, some of the interest of our community. I think Mark Harris would be a step in the complete wrong direction from where we are with Robert Pittenger. I think Dan McCready would be a step towards the middle. And if if Robin Hayes thinks that, that Mark Harris is one of his top qualifications is that he helped lead the uh, marriage amendment or that he helped um, to try to – if that's what Mark Harris or, or anybody views as a priority in the 9th Congressional District of North Carolina, I think they're off base. One race that's not uh, a partisan race – is soil and water. And what I will tell you after going to the Tuesday morning breakfast forum yesterday um, <clears throat> and hearing three of the five or six candidates that are on that ballot, I don't know the other three, but uh, I do know Nancy Carter and you do as well. And I think we'd both agree she's an uh, able and, and diligent public servant. Uh, Barbara Blyweiss, I've gotten to know a little bit. They are the two incumbents from that soil and water board and are very dedicated, very qualified. I'd highly encourage people to vote for them. And what I would say after having seen a third candidate uh, from that race speak yesterday is if you have any thoughts of voting for someone else, I'm not going to tell you not to consider other people, uh, but Google them. Because the (laughs) one that I saw yesterday, if people are voting for that candidate, uh, I hope they have Googled that candidate before voting for them. Um, mm, it is ominous. Yeah. It is, <laughs> or if you just want to do something fun, it won't take you but a few minutes. Google each of those candidates. It is a um, laundry list of red flags, uh, including time spent in lockup for felony identity theft, um, all sorts of crazy stuff. So, um, All right, let's rapid that, fire that some other ones. Interesting. Uh, I'm going to go on the NC House side of the equation and um, and I'm going to endorse 
uh, and you'll find me kind of cherry picking people I really know well, right? People that I know what's inside their hearts because I've known them for over a decade. I've worked closely with them. And the two I'm, uh, there's several good options, but the two I'm calling out there are Scott Stone and Andy Doolin, both great buddies. And, um, and you know, I, I, I just, when I look at both of them, Scott is, is a very strategic minded person who, you know, at times has has uh, has has learned kind of better ways of navigating um, the bureaucracy up there, but there's no doubt about the the fact that his mind is incredibly sharp for achieving big things. And then Andy Doolin preceded me a couple of slots before in District Six representation. He has been a long, long time buddy. And you know there are things out there that have arisen that I'm not going to comment on. I don't know about. I haven't asked him about. But I'll tell you, there is not someone with the heart. And the uh, and the energy for public service for for really serving constituents that rises above Andy Doolin. I learned everything about how to take uh, go out and freaking clean people's storm drains to that level of service from a constituent perspective from Andy. You know, I like Andy and I'm not going to get negative and talk about the things that have been in the news lately. I do think Brandon Lofton is an incredibly capable um option for people who live in that district and I, and I think that they should look long and hard at both of those folks. I've heard good things I mean I'm not going to say I haven't heard good things clearly a, a legitimate contender I just I know Andy so well and I've known him for so long and I mean you know he you know my kids call him out by name Mr. Andy every time they see him so I just you know I, I have to support some I don't I'm not friends with people that are terrible people no Andy is for anything that he Andy is or isn't, I, I I am certain that he is not a bad person. I I know he's not a bad person. I've known him for years, uh, and I really like him, which is why um, some of the stuff lately kind of pains me. Uh, again, I, I would tell people to look into that one. The th- one thing that did that I think is fair to to criticize Andy for. The Observer pointed out he was offered the opportunity by the Observer editorial board to point out a time where he had differed with House leadership over the last two years in Raleigh and couldn't come up with one. And, and so I, I think that he is a great guy and I think his heart's in the right place in, in his public service, but we need folks. And they even said, you know, Scott Stone, there was an instance they gave where Scott pushed back. And I, I don't think Scott is challenging Tim more on a regular basis, but at least there should be a, a time in all of our terms, any given term, any given, uh, elected officials should be able to say, I didn't agree with my party leadership a hundred percent of the time. And, and Andy couldn't produce one of those. So again, somebody I like a lot as a person, but I think, um, voters have a really Who good you option. Got in you got an endorsement. Um, most of the people that I really, really, uh, love on our side, a lot of them have safe races. Um, a lot of them have opponents, but not serious opponents that have really campaigned very hard. Um, I do think Brandon is somebody that people should look at. Scott's opponent, Wesley Harris, is somebody that's that's immensely qualified. Are we, if we're talking about the Senate too? Yeah. Um, I think Chad Stackowitz and Natasha Marcus are, are going to give Dan Bishop and Jeff Tart really serious challenges. Um, so, I, are you I, endorsing them? I have I have concerns, and I don't know what stock I put in the. There's also a kind of a crazy news story about Senator Bishop yesterday. I haven't had a chance to dig into it to know how much stock I put in it. Um, he has criticized Chad for mistakes he made a decade ago. I don't think that's fair. I, I hope that's not what any of us on city council aspire to as a campaign strategy because it. I really think voters get so turned off when everything becomes negative, and so many of these have become negative. Um, but I, I will say just across the board, I'm incredibly proud of the slate of candidates um, by and large that we have put forward as the Democrats in Mecklenburg County, people like Rachel Hunt, people like Wesley Harris, Natasha Marcus, Christy Clark, all these folks are, whether they win or not, and whether you think they best represent your values or not, I think they're all people that we can be proud of wearing the badges of, of Democrats. And, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with the, the folks we put I'm, forward. I'm, we're not going to win them all, but we're going to win some people weren't expecting. I'm, I'm in, I'm endorsing, uh, Jeff Tart and Dan Bishop. Also, Jason Sane, another another guy who's just super solid. Jeff Tart, not in Mecklenburg I, County, yeah, just for the record. Yep. Uh, Jeff Tart, though, is uh, a, a tireless technology um, uh, champion. He's worked very closely with me, with both of us, in different times 
on getting some things done there. Love that guy. And then Dan Bishop is is not without controversy, right? I mean, I think that it's hard to tell how much is real and how much has been characterized by the media in this caricature that we know him of, but he's a neighbor of mine. I know him pretty well. I walk down to his house occasionally and, and talk to him, and I'll, and I'll tell you, again, there are things that we don't agree on. I think we both have really held and true conservative principles. And, uh, and again, I just go back to... Has he done some things that have really angered people on the other side of the aisle? Maybe even some independents? Sure, right? Um, but is there a base of people who believes in that that he represents? Yes, there is. But more importantly to me, is he a, a smart, talented, and effective leader at what he chooses to do up there? And the answer to that is a resounding yes. And for guys like you and I who co-chair the Intergovernmental Relations Committee, having a guy like Dan, not just there and 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 reachable, but also someone that, that we can bounce things off of and he can go effectively, if he buys into it, help us accomplish something. You know, again, these are all about trade-offs. And, and as a person, I, I like him a lot. I, I understand why some people may not, but that, that's my reasoning. I'll say one, and this is not someone who needs my endorsement because they don't have a serious campaign being mounted against them. But maybe the most lovable member of the Mecklenburg delegation, I got to give a shout out to Mary Belk. She's pretty awesome. I've I've heard good things. Um, all right. So wow, what I'm about sure you're going to endorse Jeff Jackson? He doesn't need my endorsement. Oh wow, what a slight! I will say, um, he's running against Nora Trot Trotman or Trot Trotman or Trotman Trotman. Okay, with a U or no? I don't think no U. Okay, Trotman, um, who I've not met, but they got some national press. There's no U in Trotman. That's the campaign slogan. <laughs> that doesn't really make sense. Um, they just got some national yeah, press did. the other day because uh, they were complimentary of each other in terms of having run a clean campaign, which actually is just the perfect uh, counterpoint to what I was saying earlier. I think people are so turned off by if my entire campaign is telling you why you shouldn't vote for my opponent, uh, I don't think that bodes well for me. I ought to be able to tell you, particularly incumbents, I ought to be able to tell you what have they done for the betterment of Charlotte, for the betterment of Mecklenburg County in this state. And if they focus more of their time and energy and money on telling you why their opponent is evil and bad and you should be scared of them, I think that should be a red flag. When Jeff and Nora were complimentary of each other and having run a clean race, focusing on issues, just laying out what their differences are, um, that got picked up. It's sad that it got picked up because that's how unusual something like that is. Uh, and it became a national news story. So kudos to both of them yeah. for, for running like adults. Let, let me let me show you some 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 nonpartisanship right now. And this is as far as I can get to, to that point I mean, during the general election season, is that if I hadn't gotten to know Nora in a couple of events and the people she surrounds herself with and been really impressed with her, I think she's got a real, you know, uh, uh, long and hard mountain to climb here in, in this race. But had I not gotten to know her, I'm, I might consider throwing out an endorsement of Jeff Jackson. It's not because some of the things I've seen where, you know, in the super minority, I get it. He, he kind of does a little more a little more grandstanding and soapboxing. Than, How could uh, you ever relate to being yeah, a well, super I mean, minority I, and soapboxing it, it and grandstanding? It takes one to know one, right? But <laughs> I, I think he's got a lot of um, – I think he's got a lot of uh, of potential, a lot of talent. You know, I, 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 if if it weren't for Nora and the fact that I just want to support her and and see her do other things beyond this, if she's not lucky enough to win, uh, I probably would. But my hope would be that Jeff, maybe Jeff Jackson, is in a position now where that is the most effective way for him to communicate with his base. I just, you know, I'd like to see him do some more of the things that we saw. Joel Ford do, and I know that's the double-edged sword that maybe, you know, comes back and bites you, of working behind the scenes to get some things done he wanted to get done. Because I think that's been the one critique of Jeff Jackson. He's an amazing, smart, talented individual and leader, but he's chosen to stand up against the, the, the majority rather than find ways to partner and work with them. And I tell you, if I had done that here, I know council is totally different than, than the legislature, I would have gotten nothing done over the last year. Although I think if the Democratic majority on Charlotte City Council had been as reckless at times as the majority in Raleigh had been over the last two years, it would have been your responsibility to stand up. And oh, I, yeah, sure. Nothing reckless has happened from here in the last two years. Well, Definitely. I'm talking about the council that you're a part of and that oh, I'm a part of. Right. And you and I were not a part of the, the previous council. Um, 
so I think it's in both directions. There has to be a check on a supermajority if that supermajority starts abusing that power. And and I I think at times that's been done. And you actually, any judges, that, by the way, sorry. Uh, I, if we can each pick one, uh, big fan of Anita Earls, a big fan of several folks that are running statewide uh, and locally. But um, if I'm picking one, I'm giving mine to to Judge John Arrowwood. I think he has been a very capable public servant over a long period of time and deserves to continue to serve on the North Carolina Court of Appeals. If I picked out somewhere between one and three, I'd probably say Barbara Jackson, Michael Stating, a new guy on, on the scene, and obviously Matt Osmond, who's just a solid dude I've known for a while now. Um, back to my abuse of legislative power, I think that leads perfectly into – the amendments. Okay, so uh, let me assume, let me guess. You're a Knicks all six guy. I can almost see it in your face right now. Yes, but some of these are a lot worse than others. And I think that... I'm a Knicks two guy. I've decided I'm a Knicks two, yes, four. The the Knicks all six thing, I think, is more of demonstrating to the legislature that this is not how we... This is not how we legislate. This is not how we govern. And the things that they want to accomplish, if there is merit to them, could be better accomplished through legislation, not through trying to have a vaguely worded or misleadingly worded amendment on the ballot. Um, and some of these are just flat out red meat being tossed to attract a certain type of voter. The hunting and fishing one, I, I don't know that there's anything um, really terrifying about this one. But it's just completely unnecessary. And to me, it was just a, a very thinly veiled attempt. Well, hold on. It, it, I, I could argue that the hunting and fishing one, much like the income tax cap one, seems irrelevant at a glance today. But why why not lock down and solidify permanently that it will not be at risk? You, you can't. Sure. Is there an angle that that's going to bring out the, the types of rural voters that are going to vote for people? Yes, that argument can absolutely be made. But is there also something to be said that you're going to protect something no matter what happens in the future by capping an income tax or by protecting that? Yeah, I, there's an argument there. That's why I'm yes for those two. On our, on our municipal ballot next year, I'm going to put on an amendment that protects the right to eat macaroni and cheese, just in case, because like I really love macaroni and cheese. And it's not under attack right now, but you never know. Well, sure. Yeah, that macaroni and cheese is a great parallel example to... Um, well, there what is the a, more liberal folks in the state do going after higher taxes. There, sure. there is about as much of a threat to my right to eat macaroni and cheese as there is for someone's right to hunt and fish in this state right now. But the income tax thing, I think long term, why you tie your hands and, and try to predict the needs of the future. What will happen is all you're talking about is income tax. What will happen is if the state needs to generate <laughs> oh, more revenue. No, but if the state needs to generate more revenue, and they've got this constitutional They can do one of two things. They can raise your property taxes. Or they, they can raise any other taxes. Or maybe they could cut expense. I, I don't mind this do. kind of hand tying. I mean, honestly, man, like I, I almost would have preferred it if they had kept it at the 5.5% level that they initially proposed rather than you know, negotiating and, and working with others to get it to that 7.5% rate. Like, the victim's rights one there's obviously uh that one's more complex and it's not just a clear-cut no i think that trying to come up with a national strategy instead of a state-by-state -state strategy we already have victims rights uh protections in place i think a, a blanket strategy for all 50 states which is what the the people behind this law are pushing for doesn't make sense and in some states where it's been implemented it hasn't caused a lot of problems in other states where it's been implemented it has in terms of slowing down the judicial system increasing costs that hasn't happened everywhere that this has been adopted but it has happened in enough states that it should cause concern and we should have a more tailored approach i think uh for our state and each state should have their own this one was kind of a toss-up for me because i i completely and utterly believed in the the underlying premise it was trying to achieve i just think that better better wording and better kind of specificity in it might have prevented some un unanticipated consequences that are going to have to be dealt with. So at the end of the day, I was kind of 50-50 and then I went 51%. I'd rather have the immediate protections in place uh, than, and deal with some of the, the, the other things going forward than punt on the whole thing. Um I'm against, and you're for the voter ID. We talk about that with um, with Robin Hayes later in this episode, so I'm not going to get into that because uh, you'll hear us discuss it in just a few well, minutes. Well, hold on. I, I, so but the two you're against, I'm guessing, are the uh, the ones that the Supreme Court justices or the Supreme Court 
uh, ch- uh, chief justices and the governors came out against, and which the, are the Judicial Appointments Amendment yeah, and, and the, the Board of elections. elections and Ethics Amendment, yeah. um, which, again, we have one of the, I think, five weakest governors in the entire country, and this would kind of further strip away some of that executive branch power that's already very I, I, eroded. Uh, very simply, I couldn't wrap my mind around this one because I always try to think, would I, would we be doing this if we had a Republican in the governor's mansion? And the, the answer is probably no. I'm sure there are some more detailed justifications out there that I haven't heard. But based on all the feedback I have heard, I'm going to be a no on those two. But let's go back to voter ID. We're both agree. So we unified no on those two. I'm for four. You're for, you're, you're, you're for zero. But the voter ID thing, man, th- this one. So your whole argument has been this is this is about voter suppression of the folks who tend to vote Democrat. Right. That's it's essentially your argument. It would it would primarily disenfranchise lower income voters many of whom historically have been Democratic voters, and I, I don't think that that's lost on the people that wrote this. Uh, this is also something that they've tried to do through other means unsuccessfully before. So I, it's just they just keep trying to, like, a different angle at this to try to get it. All right, so forget about the, the, the storied history of how this has come up and failed and come up, right? Just think about this aspect, and this is why I ultimately supported it. There are angles by which people can be impacted. But then again, you can do – it takes an ID to almost do anything of importance today in this society. So I can make the same argument that we're cutting people out of being able to fly or you know whatever it might be that they need to do. But my main point is this. On the other side of that coin, the most important thing that puts our democracy, particularly voting, at risk is trust in the system. And right now, all attention is on, you know, Russia meddling and, and hacking into this. And, and the, bot- the bottom punchline of that is if we don't trust that the, that the voices of the people and that um, the Electoral College ultimately were tallied in the right way, we have a really fundamental problem of this republic, right? But why is nobody really on the other side of this argument worried about, okay, maybe there are a few examples uh, and, and they're not very many of how people voting uh, improperly also goes against this trust. But at the end of the day, I, I've been with banks and these companies implementing controls against risk and cybersecurity and all those things for over a decade. We don't just put controls in place for things that are showing the, you know, the boat is sinking. We anticipate where the risk exposure is. And I got to believe preserving our trust in voting is is should warrant even if there aren't that many hard examples which many others might argue there are is worth putting that control in place we've got a wrap because we've got a community meeting to go to but you're a guy you're a guy who always wants data and you don't want to go on gut you say show me where the need is for but the black swan event doesn't have data that's the bottom line in risk exposure modeling you can have a lot of data on the things that are happening all the time now but you have to extrapolate the black swan event that hasn't happened which is everyone loses faith because that we find out that there's all kinds of improper voting if they're hacking machines and stuff voter id doesn't stop that absentee ballots where the little bit of voter fraud that that ever occurs tends to be in voter id doesn't help that so there's no demonstrated need for this. There, this is a solution looking for a problem, mm. and there is not any empirical data that would demonstrate that that we need this. So, again, I think it's a red meat type of thing. Uh, we talk about it more with with Robin Hayes in uh, in our final segment, I believe. But um, we got a committee meeting to get to, so let's throw it to the field where uh, on scene we've got reporters Tark McCarr and Larkin Eggleston with Democratic Party Chair Wayne Good. Larkin and Tark, take it away. All right, we are outside the Morrison Regional Library. Uh, a lot going on here with early voting, and we have caught up with none other than Mr. Wayne Goodwin, the chair of the North Carolina Democratic Party. Welcome to R&D and the QC, Mr. Goodwin. It is my pleasure to be here. Thank you. And welcome to District 6, the most powerful district 
This is this is the district Targ represents, uh, as you might have guessed. So uh, Wayne, before being chair of the state Democratic Party, uh, was an eight-year member of the North Carolina General Assembly in the North Carolina House, and was also a ter- two-term uh, commissioner of insurance on the Council of State. Ooh. So tell us a little bit about you and I were talking before we uh, started up the interview here about your time in the General Assembly. You said you worked under leadership of both parties during that time. That's right. I was elected uh, in 1996 to the House of Representatives, and I was uh, a wee lad at that point. How old were you? I, I was 28 when I announced, 29 whenever I uh, filed and and, uh, and, at, and, was, and sworn in, and then I turned 30 after that. So I was at that point one of the youngest, not the youngest member uh, of the legislature. That's since changed. Um, it, at that point, it was quite interesting. Uh, things were not as hyper-partisan as they are now in Raleigh or, and in Washington, but, but it was interesting in that it was the, uh, a time when the uh, Republicans had uh, the control of the House of Representatives but did not have the state Senate. And uh, so my first term, I was a, not only a backbencher freshman Democrat, but I also was in the minority. And then, uh, then over the rest of my uh, uh, terms in office, it went from being a uh, Republican majority to, at one point, being a uh, split where you had co-speakers. You had uh, uh, Democratic and Republican co-speakers. First time that ever happened. It's the last Wait, time it happened. 60-60 split? Yes. Yeah, it was. It was very interesting. And actually, things got done then, hmm. curiously. You know, we, we met on time. We finished on time. There was a lot of cooperation. And then uh, when I finished my service in the legislature, uh, it had, had, had become a Democratic majority. And then my spouse succeeded me, and she was there during the years that the Democrats were back in the majority. They refer to that time period as the Goodwin Empire. <laughs> Uh, the bad old days. <laughs> or the good old days. I don't you know. You know, tomato, tomato. That's right. That's right. So then you spent eight years on the Council of State as the Commissioner of Insurance, which also conveys with it another title that's pretty cool that I don't think Targ knows about. But he's going to roll his eyes as soon as I say it. Please, tell me. You're the State Fire Marshal when you're the Commissioner of Insurance. Ooh, I'm down with that. It was awesome uh, because in addition to being the Insurance Commissioner, which is a, a, a very important role uh, for a lot of reasons, State Fire Marshal, you're the state's fire chief. And you get to work and be the voice of and the and, and, and I guess the, the, the chief person uh, with our firefighters. And they're of the 54,000 firefighters, 72% are volunteers in this state. And, you know, it's just awesome to be able to work side by side and be the, the voice of and the and I guess the state's fire chief with all these great first responders. Just a random question. I have no idea what the commissioner of insurance does, but does it deal with the insurance industry as well, or is that uh, unrelated? No, it is. The insurance commissioner is the chief state insurance regulator. Oh, it's like the banking commissioner, but yes. for insurance. Oh, because we've been partnering with, on another note, AIG and AFLAC and, you know, MetLife. And I don't think people realize what a significant uh, – concentration of these insurance big players we have. North Carolina and particularly Charlotte Mecklenburg is is the hub of a lot of banking and finance and insurance related industry industry uh, and there's a lot of crossover and uh, most people don't know that there is an insurance commissioner but there's one in every state. Mm-hmm. They may call it different things in different states but every state has a, a, a statewide insurance regulator and North Carolina is one of 11 states that elects the commissioner of insurance and I'm glad we do that uh, for a lot of reasons. But uh, it's uh, but it's one it's a position nationally where uh, f- folks work together in a bipartisan way because it helps consumers and businesses and and economic development and the like to have a not only a thriving insurance industry but also one that that protects consumers and, and the like. So so I enjoyed that. But the fire marshal component was the one I really liked the most because you get to work with a lot of terrific folks uh, throughout North Carolina. My only disappointment in the time it take me, took me to get my state certification as a volunteer firefighter was you had moved on to your new endeavor by the time I completed my, uh, by the time I completed all of that training and I didn't have your signature on my certificate. That was my only disappointment uh, was that I didn't get fire marshal Goodwin. I may have an extra badge somewhere I could uh, give to you. As a- you can just, like, sign his shirt or his chest or something. <laughs> Do you guys remember Fire Marshal Bill from yes. In Living Color? Yeah, I kind of yes, can picture right. Wayne, oh, my. like, on fire, hair all charred. and uh, well, That would explain my hairline. So let's, let, let, let's, get to, uh, let's get to the – it's election season. This is probably going to be our election episode. So what's your question of uh, the D side of the R&D guests we'll hopefully have on this episode? 
Well, yeah, we are expecting to also have your counterpart from the state Republican Party on for this episode. Uh, we're going to connect with him soon, and we want to ask both of you guys. We're standing out here in front of an early voting site. There's a couple of things that a lot of our listeners uh, in the Mecklenburg County, Charlotte area will see on their ballot, but people across the state will see. And I think you and, uh, and Chairman Hayes will have interesting perspective, as you guys have probably both been traveling the state extensively, on the constitutional amendments, the six amendments that will be on everyone's ballot in the state of North Carolina, and a handful of judicial races, including a seat on our state Supreme Court that will be on the statewide ballot. So tell us a little bit about your perspective on those things that everyone in North Carolina is going to see when they go out and vote. Right. This is one of those blue moon elections where, you know, there's there's no presidential race, there's no governor's race, there's no U.S. Senate race in North Carolina. You know, and the, so the marquee race really is the is the North Carolina Supreme Court race and the statewide court of appeals positions, which there are three that are up uh, for a number of reasons. The and I, which I disagree with the the uh, legislature moved those marquee races to lower on the ballot. So what folks are going to see first on their ballot is going to be the congressional races. Uh, so in my opinion, for for a, a, a whole host of reasons, it is vital that folks realize that that we are voting for the judicial branch uh, leadership, uh, voting for a member of the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals, and with these constitutional amendments, which are also buried well down deep on the ballot, most people aren't going to be as familiar as they need to. So I commend y'all for wanting to talk about that. Happy to talk about them individually or collectively, however you'd like. Yeah, there's two that have that would move some power from the executive branch of our state government to the legislative branch. Um, there's one around capping tax rates. There's one around victims' rights. Um, remind me the one I'm missing. There's a hunt and fish. And I'm interested to hear your take on that because the Democratic line on that one is it's really just a red meat amendment that was thrown on there to attract a certain type of voter because people in this state already have the right to hunt and fish. But pick any one or two of those that you think are particularly interesting and, and give us your take on them. Well, we've seen the voter ID one for a while in different, in voter different, ID. right, in different uh, combinations and derivations, and the like. So, and you know, polling has been done by folks that shows that it it's popular. But when you get into the meat of how it's written, just like with the other constitutional amendments, the devil literally is in the details. That some of these amendments, as they've been drafted, and there's a, there's a test that you run as a, as a state insurance commissioner. I'm familiar with this called the Fleisch test, where you determine how complex an insurance policy is. By, by the length of the sentences, by the clauses, by the words that are used. And it has been determined that the way these several of these constitutional amendments have been drafted, particularly the one that deals with appointing vacancies uh, in our judiciary, that this more complex by three, three times more complex than an insurance policy. And the average voter isn't going to understand it. So when they get to the bottom of the ballot and they see constitutional amendments, they're either going to like not know what it's about or they're going to misunderstand what it's about because of, of the very short caption. Uh, you know, and you may have some specific questions about that amendment or the others, but, but these amendments are not crafted really as tightly or as, uh, I think, as fairly as they could have been. Yeah, and I, I think uh, I, I have never met a person who, like, at a first glance is like, I totally understand an amendment or some kind of referendum where the wording is, is, is tough to get, but put that aside for a second. What's the, uh, and we'll ask the same question of, of Robin Hayes, you know, what's, uh, I'll frame it this way from the, our side of, of, of our, of our, uh, our dialogue that we have, what's so bad about asking for ID in this day and age uh, and not the typical suppression type storylines, but just you got to have an ID to do almost anything of importance around here. Why should voting be any different? And that's a very fair question, and, and this is one that we've had have had discussions about for a good while. Uh, a lot of folks they often say, "Well, you need an ID to you know to get on a plane. You need an ID to you know to get certain types of medication." Well, getting on a plane or getting certain types of medication is not necessarily spelled out as one of your rights. Uh, in the U.S. Constitution uh, and in the state constitution about voting rights. My greatest concern, again, wearing not only my hat as chairman of the state Democratic Party, but just as a, you know, as someone who's been a legislator and has helped craft legislation, is that you always ask the question, all right, what's, what's, the, what's the worst thing that could happen? What is the worst case scenario? Is there, some, is there somebody or some incident or some circumstance that is not covered by a particular amendment, or in this instance, a constitutional amendment. What's the worst case scenario? There are there are some uh, veterans, retirees, and particularly very senior folks who, even though it may be a small percentage of the population, do not have uh, an ID, and the state has not 
provided a methodology for how do those folks get IDs that are acceptable. Um, and that's a concern. We want to make sure that everybody who's a, a, a citizen of this state uh, and is eligible based upon the long-standing criteria for voter eligibility, that they you know, are not turned away because of something that they can't afford or have never had or were left out of the left out of the discussion. So that's where we are. I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's one that we're going to continue to have, but it, it's not something that we should rush through. Yeah, it seems to be a solution in search of a problem. It's such a high-risk, low-reward thing to to fraudulently vote. I mean, it's a, it's a felony crime to cast one ballot, uh, and it just there's nothing documented to demonstrate that it's a problem. In fact, what little voter I, or voter fraud does seem to occur nationwide tends to be more of your mail-in absentee yeah. ballot stuff, and and that we still wouldn't be able to require an ID for. Um, but I, 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 are there any others? I mean, the hunt and fish seems a bit innocuous, but again, I don't know that there's there's much merit to its need. Are there any others? The victim's right one, I, I think, is actually going to be the one that confuses people the most because a lot of what's in that amendment is already codified right. in law, right. and there are some high-profile people. I just saw the other day Kelsey Grammer yeah. doing a, a PSA on TV about why you should support this law. This one, I think, is going to be more complicated for a lot of folks than some of the others that they see through and they see the the vagaries in. This is something that's been going on in a lot of other states. What's your take on that one? And and, and just to yeah, exactly. And just from like a local perspective, Larkin and I really try to stay focused as much as we can on local issues here. And from an outsider's view, I would say you know the Democrat position that I've heard is nix the six, right? No to all six. I mean, is it is it true that like literally all six are all terrible ideas, or is this more of a party versus party kind of platform for other purposes? I think that there are some of the proposed amendments that are totally opposed because of of public policy reasons. There are some that are opposed because uh, they were not drafted uh, more perfectly. Uh, and there's some that are, as you put it, are for, for partisan reasons, and, I, and I, I think people can know what they are. On the Marcy's Law proposal, we, we all of us want to protect victims. We, we want to make sure that our, our judicial system, our system of our, our laws in this state, in this country, protect those who have been harmed and protect the public. Uh, what we've learned in other states is that the way this has been drafted, and this is, this is a national movement, so in a way we're being, you know, we're, we're, we're following what some other states have done, but there's been a huge uh, financial donor that is that is that is uh, responsible for this program and what we've seen in some other states i think new hampshire may have decided to withdraw its proposal uh and the concerns that that have been in places that that even judges have said is that the way it's drafted uh because it'll be in the constitution instead of a statute is that it's going to cause uh slowdowns in the rendering of justice and it's going to cause trials and and prosecutions and the like to take much longer. And if that's true, and I, and I, I listen and I believe our judges of, of both parties, when they say that an idea is going to slow down the court process, uh, that obviously this is something that's been rushed. Um, so whenever something is poorly drafted, uh, and I was, as a former legislator, I might have supported various things, but I, but I wanted to make sure they were perfected before I would support them. We need to look into that. And instead of making constitutional amendments, uh, let's make sure we flesh things out, make sure they are they are ripe to be voted on. But but there are some items that that are purely there for you know for partisan reasons and uh, uh, and I just ask folks to make sure they learn all they can, ask questions not only of their legislators but ask you know is this something that can be addressed another way on, on all of these issues. I go into the uh, one about filling the judicial vacancies. If this was if this was such a huge problem, then why did the Republican legislature not propose it when Governor McCrory was governor? And in fact, he opposes this one. And he opposes this along with along Every with other Governor, Governor Martin. Governor Martin opposes it. Governor McCrory opposes it. Easley and Hunt uh, and Purdue oppose it. As do the, all the former chief justices of the of the, the state. In both parties. In both parties. And uh, it's 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 something where that's one of those partisan things. I believe that is one of the proposed amendments that is not for good public policy. Is really a, a battle over power. And our state historically, as y'all know. Uh, had a very strong, dominant legislative branch, and it wasn't really until modern times that we became like other states and had a co-equal, uh, independent uh, 
three branches of government that sort of balance each other out, just like the founding fathers proposed. Which is actually still debatable because most things I've read said we have one of the weakest governors in the we country, no, even no. still. And we this do. would further weaken the executive branch. That is exactly right. It would further weaken the executive branch. And that's why even like uh, like former Justice Bob Orr, Republican Bob Orr, uh, says this is this is going to, to tilt us away from uh, the three independent branches of government is going to weaken the governor's the governor's uh, role and the executive branch. So, so I think that amendment is one that folks are going to misunderstand because it makes it sound like it's about the meritorious selection of judges. And I don't know about y'all, but I'd rather have hold a governor accountable for who he or she has appointed to fill a judicial vacancy than 170 members of the legislature who are not accountable to the whole state. And there's more politics in my book in determining who a caucus supports for a, filling a judicial vacancy than a governor. We've had governors of both parties appoint opposing party members to the judiciary. If you put it in the hands of the legislature, it's going to be a partisan thing every time. Last point on this, and I brought this up in a debate a few weeks ago uh, with a few legislators. Uh, it was a, uh, sponsored by the Institute of Political Leadership. And I said, look, look at what South Carolina did. South Carolina decided to make its legislature uh, the branch that chose who would serve in the judicial branch. Their, their Supreme Court essentially became a retirement home for former legislators. Hmm. Talk about politics. We don't need that. Well, I think uh, the one thing we could all probably agree on is, uh, you mentioned it in your point, the recommendation for anyone out there is go do some homework. Yes. This is not easy. It's not meant to be easy. This is a right and a responsibility. Right. And uh, go out there, read the wording, Go and look at both sides' argument and their interpretation and then see which one resonates with you best and vote on them. And my gut is if, if you're not playing partisan politics and you're the general person out there that's doing this, you're probably not going to do the same thing on all six. And, you know, maybe you end up doing that, but that might be a good barometer given the fact that these things are all over the map. My final question to you, and we'll see if Larkin has any to close us out, is – from the Democrat side, from a state perspective, within your your purview, you know, what's one Democratic race that you think are going to surprise a lot of people in a good way? And what's one that you're uh, maybe a little nervous about in a bad way? Well, it's hard to pick out one that will be a surprise in a good way, because as, as state party chair, I, I, I've seen more excitement, more energy among our, our Democratic candidates uh, that I've seen in a long, long time. And, 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 of course, right now, there's a lot of excitement on both sides of the aisle as we get into early vote period. So uh, I would say that I'm, we're going to see a lot of surprises that the Democrats will be pleased with with some seats that we're going to flip uh, in the legislative races. Uh, I predict that the Democrats are going to break the supermajority in the House and are, gonna, are making a run for the majority in the House. But it's going to really, I think it's going to be more how far, how deep do they break the supermajority. Um, in terms of ones that, that I you know, am concerned about, uh, we are right here in the 9th Congressional District. Uh, this is a, an open seat. So it was not to, expected to be an open seat, but it's an open seat. And uh, I, I think that people are going to be watching nationally and in North Carolina uh, as to what happens with the Dan McCready-Mark uh, Harris race. Uh, I'm also watching, watching the uh, Linda Coleman-George uh, Holding race and also the Ted Budd and, and, uh, and, and Kathy Manning races. Well, those three, those three I'm very you know, mindful of, but particularly here in the 9th, uh, with the McCready-Harris race because uh, uh, midterms, strange things happen. You know, just a, a down tick or an up tick of a, a few votes per precinct can change an entire outcome. So that's where I am on it. I'll add one to that because just because she's a dear friend and probably my favorite person running for Congress in North Carolina this year, Dee Dee Adams, I'm hoping, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. is going to come in and surprise oh, yeah. some folks. She's got a, a heavy lift, uphill climb. But uh, I think she's got a chance to surprise folks. We really appreciate you coming on. We hope you'll come back on. Maybe we can do a post-election recap in a couple of months. But uh, that was, once again, Democratic State Party Chair Wayne Goodwin. Thanks again for being here. Yeah, thanks for being here. This was a lot of fun. I'm assuming when my other Republican counterpart and I get to gang up on Larkin, that will be more fun for me. But it was pleasurable. Thanks, man. Thank you very much. Great job, guys. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're back, and we're here with our second major guest that we've mentioned, uh, NC GOP Chairman Robin Hayes. Uh, Mr. Hayes, welcome to the show. 
I thought I was first in your heart and in your hit parade. Okay. I, you are first in my heart, sir. Definitely. We had Larkin's guy on earlier today. Larkin, why don't you give, uh, why don't you give uh, the chair a rundown of what we discussed earlier with your, your colleague? I just did, uh, right before we started taping here, we talked with State Party Chair of the Democrats, Wayne Goodwin, about not only his service in the state of North Carolina, as we'll do with you, uh, but about the constitutional amendments and the statewide judicial candidates, and then let him put in a couple of plugs for anything that he had on his mind. And uh, and we'd love to do the same with you. So you and I actually at uh, luncheon recently got the chance to talk about how you started in municipal elected office, moved into the General Assembly, and then into Congress. So tell us a little bit about your path uh, through elected office and in public service. I got my start on the city council. We were called Alderman in Concord. Wow. And enjoyed it thoroughly. It was a totally happenstance kind of thing where a sitting member said, you ought to run for this seat next time. And that was the beginning of a long career. Every seat I ever ran for was a Republican running in a Democrat district. So I've had a good experience in helping people get along. Politics at its best is simply how people decide to order their lives together. Sometimes you may have seen people get off track. (laughs) My job as state and national chairman is to bring people on track and make sure that we're doing things that make sense for our cities and our counties and our state. Walk us through a couple steps between Alderman, which is, uh, that's, that's, we don't hear that too often around here uh, as the title, and uh, NCGOP chairman. That's a long road. I don't think you've got enough tape to cover that. <laughs> Again, it was a four-year term, and our family had a chance to go live in Alaska in the Arctic after that term, so I didn't serve again until... I ran for the North Carolina General Assembly, I think it was about 1990. And again, I wasn't smart enough to know that when they redistricted, it went from a four-member district to four single-member districts. It was drawn for three Republicans and one Democrat. As a Republican, I ran the Democrat seat and won. But again, my whole theme in politics has been to represent the people that have elected me, regardless of what their registration is. Solid. So, um, Larkin, any follow-ups uh, on on uh, on resume before we move into some of his thoughts? Well, yeah. One of the things we talked with uh, with Mr. Goodwin about was his time in the legislature, and he said, and I don't know, you can speak to if you guys overlapped at any point. I don't think you quite did, though. You maybe were close. That he had actually served in a legislature when there was both Republican leadership, Democratic leadership, and he says that he served during a sixty-sixty even split with co-speakers of the house which i didn't even realize had ever happened when you were there were you part of the majority minority or or both at time different times it was very clear there were 42 of us and there were 78 democrats (laughs) that's a pretty clear minority our ideas did not have a whole lot of weight into the discussion however i was the first republican to ever pass an amendment to the democrat appropriations bill So I learned early on how to work again to serve our constituents. Transfer to a local race, Mark Harris, man of faith, wonderful pastor. My amendment to that budget bill was to allow a voluntary payment to school systems who wanted to teach abstinence until marriage as the expected standard of behavior as opposed to what was being done in the curriculum which when people learned about it, they were absolutely incensed as to what young people were being taught. It still happens today. Faith matters. So let's let's transition now. Some of the real interesting points made by um, by your your uh, uh, I, I won't call it is it colleague counterpart, counterpart. your counterpart. Well, specifically on the uh, on the six amendments uh, to the Constitution that are on the ballot. And, you know, we dug in a little bit here and there. I, I asked questions like what's, you know, what ranging from what's so wrong about asking someone for their ID when literally you have to have an ID to do anything today. But more broadly, his position was there's a variety of kind of flavors and, and some things they're adamantly against some things that are more partisan politics based i guess my question is the same question i had to him was what specifics would you call out in those six amendments that you would say this is why this makes sense but more importantly is this partisan politics why someone would be for or against all of them in a blanket statement well it is partisan politics when he's taking the simple 
position nicks all six. It's easy to be against everything. We as Republicans believe that these six amendments enhance the ability of our citizens, Republicans and Democrats, to be closer to their government, to know what's going on, to have a significant voice in choosing judges, not allowing them to become political appointees, gives our citizens the chance to participate in the Board of Elections process, again, using a combination of judicial, legislative, and the governor to make the choices of who's going to fill those slots. Again, it's about the people versus the policy of no. To be fair to Wayne, Wayne didn't use the phrase "nicks all six in our interview earlier. Tar- I did. Tark did bring I said, it up. That's the advertising but campaign I've seen. Do you believe that if there were a Republican governor in the governor's mansion right now, that the legislature would have written the two amendments that move some of that executive branch power to the legislative branch? The biggest grab of power I've ever seen in my 73 years is when the Democrats took every ounce of power they could from their own governor jim hunt so it's kind of foolish to say that but on the other hand governors are a different breed of cat we had two republican governors who as governors said do not support this amendment taking power from the governor it really doesn't take power from the governor it allows the electorate to participate much more fully and how these judicial selections are made. And we have seen with Justice Kavanaugh and the debacle that was destruction, that's straight out of Saul Alinsky's paybook, destroy one man and you'll keep other people from getting involved, you'll discourage them from running, and that's how you beat the other side. So back to the issue, people should have a voice, they should have access, they should have the ability to look between the lines and see what's really involved. What's the case the state party's making on the on why it just makes sense for for uh, requiring ID for voters? You have to have an ID to do anything, from checking into a motel to going to a movie to getting on an airplane. It just makes sense. Integrity of the ballot is the question. We must absolutely protect ballot integrity. You should never have to worry about having your legitimate vote canceled. And you've seen examples just this week in Pitt County of people trying to register fraudulent folks and, again, game the system. You saw it with illegal aliens. I think it was in New Hanover County. So it does happen. It shouldn't happen. Again, common sense, and everybody has made it clear if we go to voter ID, Everybody that wants one will be for free furnished an appropriate ID that can use for other things so, as well. That is the reason I support it, that sure. what you just said. We get a lot of pushback. And to be fair to those who are pushing back, it's hard to know what's in the hearts of those who are doing it. I always believe it's a good thing to prevent fraud and you need an ID for everything else. But the pushback we do here is this is about voter suppression and it's the other party that 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 bears the brunt of that i mean well, and that all the things that get named when you talk about what's what you have to have an id to do are not things that are outlined as rights for you in the constitution i well all right i don't like that one as much yeah, but i, I fraud versus versus suppression what the democrats did in washington on the kavanaugh hearing that is voter suppression what the democrats said the people were you are guilty until proven innocent now, that is voter suppression. People are not going to get involved because they see how letting that happen will completely reverse our system of innocent until proven guilty. That's voter suppression. Next question. I, th- I mean, I think there are also plenty of instances like, and I, I don't presume that you were part of this, but there were, there were certainly large rallies of people chanting lock her up about Hillary Clinton and her emails where there was a presumption of guilt before there was any sort of proof of guilt. So I, I think both parties have done a disservice in that way in trying to, when it's convenient, say someone is guilty before until they're proven innocent and, and vice versa to defend their own people. So It's dangerous. I, I think that cuts both, both ways. It's dangerous. a dangerous trend. It does cut both ways, but that's not a very good example. There's so many things that Hillary has been convicted by the public with her foundation and everything else. They know that you can't do the influence peddling that the Secretary of State she was doing with a private foundation. She broke all kinds of laws. But again, back to your point, you do need to be careful that you do not find yourself doing things that you criticize others for.
Very yeah, now. that is that so true. Agree on. I agree on that. And the other thing we try to do, this is maybe the first time we've even mentioned a national politics thing in 39 episodes. We have made a mission to steer clear from it because anytime we start talking about national level politics, it's so divisive. We start screaming at each other. So we keep it local. Our screaming is to a minimum. Uh, but So you've got the next question, Larkin. Well, I was just going to say on the amendments, regardless of what you think the merit of the amendments or the intent of the amendments is, do you think they could have been written more clearly? Because that's been one of the criticisms is that they weren't written clearly enough for people to have confidence in how that law might be written if the public passes the amendment. Do you think they could have done a better job on that front? Always that can happen. At the same time, I've got a lot of confidence, and I know both of you do, in the ability of the public to read do some research and to understand what's going on and make an informed decision. Man, I hope so. I don't know how high my confidence level is of that, to be terrible. On either way, I hate it when people come in and they don't know what they're voting for or they vote for someone because they like the name or they saw a yard We're sign. Sure that's how Tarek got most of his votes was that they just liked the name Tarek. Bacari. Exactly. I mean, it's a strong conservative name for District 6. But, I mean, two percent uh, 2% of mine because Robin, they thought I was a woman. <laughs> So do you think that uh, do you think that that people will do their homework? Because what we've encouraged and we'll encourage our listeners again to do is go read the wording itself, and then go find a Republican position and interpretation and a Democrat, and which one resonates truest with you? But is that I mean, do you do you think people will do that, or do you have other guidance for people to do their homework? Like they do. One of the things that I think is a natural result of all the controversy and conflict is people are more aware they're more involved they're more intense about making decisions and they do have the ability and i think they are being motivated to look carefully and i would ask them to take both filters republican and democrat off look at how does it affect me as a citizen of charlotte and mecklenburg county so the one other thing that everybody across our state and you and wayne both cover the entire state you've seen everything from the urban areas like charlotte mecklenburg to the rural counties the other thing that that everybody has is the common thread of their ballot this year is a handful of state judicial races um what what's your take on some of those barbara jackson is one of the most qualified competent experienced judges that have ever sat on the supreme court she deserves everybody's support her main opponent Anita Earls has no judicial experience. She is an advocate. She's advocated for 38-year imprisoned criminals who never should have been given the kind of support that she gave them. Put that aside for a minute. The wild card is Chris Anglin, who is an imposter. He registered as a Republican very short time before the election. Has a less than stellar record that would cause you to question his ability to sit on the highest court in the state of North Carolina. So again, Barbara Jackson is a clear choice. I hope people will look again through all the clutter and see how competent she is and how important to have a person on the bench who judges, not legislates. Totally agree. Do you think that the system could have been better structured if you wanted to have somebody that you felt like represented the Republican Party more clearly, do you think that not having either partisan labels on the highest court in our state or in having primaries that allow each party to put forward what they feel like is their strongest candidate would have yielded a better result in this instance? It's a good idea to have the label on each candidate. Hindsight, they should have had primaries in the judicial races as well. I'll ask you uh, the same question I asked the North Carolina Democratic uh, chair. I'll invert it, though, for you, and that is um, you see statewide. You obviously also pay close attention to what's going on here in Mecklenburg and the surrounding counties. Um, are, are, if you think of two races, one in which you're looking at that you think Republicans are going to be pleasantly surprised by, and one that you think the Republican candidate um, is is you're watching closely because you're nervous. Do anything jump to do any races specifically jump to mind in those categories? Well, the ninth district concerns me because you have a true Republican conservative pastor who's running to really make a difference in this district, and then you've got another Democrat who's running as a Republican, and even the Charlotte Observer 
says he won't take a stand. Dan, where do you stand? You say you won't vote for Pelosi, but how about her policy? Somebody needs to ask Dan McCready how he feels about Nancy Pelosi's policy. And guess what? Should he get there, and I certainly hope he doesn't, he doesn't have a choice. He votes for Nancy Pelosi. Do you think about, you say uh, that obviously makes you nervous. Does also the demographics of, of the district and the tightness of the race make you nervous right now? If you've ever run for election, unless you run unopposed, yeah. you run scared. True. And I've never run unopposed. I'd like to try it one time, but my election days are over. But again, we've got a great choice here. Yeah. Here's a man who spent his professional career helping people over the humps in their life, working with them across the board, even statewide, on the marriage amendment, marriage between a man and a woman. He stood strong. Dan hasn't stood for anything. Well, I, I was at an event tonight with Dan uh, supporting the LGBT community. I do think Dan would stand for marriage equality, which is what we as Democrats, and I think a lot of moderate Republicans or independent voters would like to see. What do you think, we, we know now that uh, Congressman Pittenger will not obviously be returning. What do you think would be different from a Congressman Harris uh, versus what we've seen from a Congressman Pittenger if, if Harris were to be elected? I think, well, of course, both of them are good conservative Republicans. I think you will see a, and again, this, this may sound like it's, it's a, a complaint. It's not. Robert has the tremendous knowledge and was really involved in a whole host of foreign policy issues. Particularly counterterrorism and cyberterrorism, which he led a lot of the charge on. The charge, very, very important. Again, this is the difference, not one better than the other, but Mark Harris will be much more involved in the daily life of all the different counties and the individuals in this district. I think he will be a pastor in the most appropriate sense to the people in the 9th District. Interesting. Well, listen, uh, we really appreciate the time. I think this is almost unprecedented. This is going to be part of our election special show. Um, and we're, well, he's, oh, he, yeah, he's a, oh, you didn't know he's a big old Democrat? R and D stands for Republican and Democrat. I guess that became clear when, uh, when he made his final comments. Well, but I'm the city councilman is a Democrat. There you go. There you go. Fantastic. Well, what happened to you, Robbie? <laughs> How did we lose you? It's like a puppet. My eyes were open. Oh, <laughs> but it'll be, I think it will be un- unprecedented to have ba- in back to back segments you and your, your counterpart, uh, kind of breaking down your views on the state and the races and the election and we can't thank you enough for your time any final thoughts from you larkin we appreciate you and mayor bylisles i used that as an example of how charlotte has demonstrated clearly people in both parties different persuasions can get along come together to bring about something that is a huge benefit for charlotte so my hat's off to you and to Mayor Bylisles and Smuggy and others that supported this. Here, here. I, I have often said people ought to be able to disagree agreeably, and uh, I think Mayor Lyles does a pretty good job of exhibiting that. Absolutely, and it doesn't even have to be necessarily disagree every once in a while. Let's get our views out there and put them on the table and look at them objectively. Larkin and I disagree about five times a day, and until I, I convince him otherwise, you know, then... then uh, we just continue. Five out of a hundred. That's exactly. Well, hey, thank you so much for being on. We really appreciate you, Robin Hayes. Come with it now.